Canada is so big, there is no one size fits all, right? Like right. we don't have an, a national approach that's going to work, you know, where I'm sitting here in, you know, I don't want to say Northern Ontario, maybe mid Ontario, mm -hmm. um, but you know, where folks in the Atlantic are or in Northern Canada, like we need to really, we know, and, and you and I have discussed this before, but like based on where you live, it matters when it comes to energy. <laughs> This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face -face, but using Zoom. This is the third podcast in a series shining a light on climate change, net zero greenhouse gas commitments, and what the implications may be for those net zero commitments. I noted in previous podcasts the notable example of such a commitment by the Government of Canada through Bill C-12, an act respecting transparency and accountability in Canada's efforts to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2050. On the day this podcast was recorded, Bill C-12 was passed by the House of Commons in Ottawa and is now in front of the Senate, with the expectation that C-12 will receive royal assent in the coming weeks. Over this podcast series, I want to unpack these GHG emissions reduction targets and net zero commitments to try and understand what they mean for the governments that make these commitments, the potential impacts on the companies that produce and deliver electricity, how it will change energy use, and what it may mean for the customers. For this third podcast in the series, I'm joined by Molly Johnson, the Assistant Deputy Minister, Low Carbon Energy Sector at Natural Resources Canada. Here is my conversation with Molly Johnson, recorded in June 2021. Molly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I've never done a podcast before, so this is. Uh, but I'm a listener and consumer of many of them. All right. Well, <laughs> well, well. I'm glad. I'm glad you were able to join this, even though it's your first. And uh, why don't we start off with uh, your role at Natural Resources Canada? It's the the low carbon sector. And I found that intriguing when you first took over that role, and we chatted about that because uh, this this was a brand new role at the time. Uh, and it was before we were talking about net zero 2050, but yeah. it was kind of just in advance of that. Uh, what was the, the evolution of establishing a low carbon branch at Natural Resources Canada? Uh, thanks. It's a great question. And um, I must say, I feel tremendously fortunate to have been put into a role and to have an opportunity to um, establish a sector that's really thinking about where Canada's energy opportunities are. Um, and, you know, so the, the, the sector was really established thinking about the fact that we have, you know, we started with generation energy. Um, gosh, I can't believe that was almost 2018 when we were talking about oh, these yeah. pathways for decarbonization. So, you know, what can clean fuels look like? What can the electrification pathways look like? You know, what are sort of those roles look like? And so trying to sort of pull together um, what that could be as a sector, as an opportunity, as we were working with our colleagues 
um, at ECCC just to sort of think about what that universe and um, and how we pull together like the programmatic, the regulatory um, opportunities. So that was a that was a bit of the idea um, around it. it. You know, in very practical form as well. Um, the uh, the oil and gas part that had typically been part of that uh, that office is just such a high volume team as well and really does require um, a high level of leadership so uh, that also created an opportunity for it to get the attention that it very much does deserve as we're working through this period of transformation right so I, I said it's you know we're, we're one of the things that, that has changed between then and now is is we uh, we have a, a government that that has a, a policy we've got the legislation that's just wrapping up on net zero 2050 yep. uh, and so uh, in in the world of net zero 2050 as we uh, you know seek to decarbonize what do you think the biggest challenge is when it comes to decarbonizing the economy generally what what do you what do you see as the biggest uh... so, so I think. A couple of things. I mean, if, first of all, Canada has tremendous opportunities when we're looking at decarbonizing. We have like our vast resources. We have the experience of being an energy leader for you know decades, um, and and that's something really that we can grow on in terms of the strength of our people um, and our resource economy. And we've also had things like the you know the recent report of the International Energy Agency that sort of maps out a pathway to net zero by 2050. Right. And I say a pathway because like. It's, there's not one size fits all. So then when we kind of talk to what the challenges are to, to decarbonization, yeah. I think that's really our challenge is that Canada is so big, there is no one size fits all, right? Like right. we don't have an, a national approach that's going to work, you know, where I'm sitting here in, you know, I don't want to say Northern Ontario, maybe mid Ontario, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, where folks in the Atlantic are or in Northern Canada, like we need to really, we know, and, and you and I have discussed this before, but like based on where you live, it matters when it comes to energy. So right. I think we need to be thinking about like what those sort of pathways and opportunities look like and how we apply like the technology, the tools mm -hmm. um, that we have to really drive our energy and decarbonization pathways. Yeah, you know, I thought it was really interesting that work done a couple of months ago, well, I mean, it was that work was done over a period of time that was released a couple of months ago by the Canadian Institute of Climate Choices that was yeah. looking at at the various pathways. And and I think they they were looking at like 60 different pathways that right? led to, to net zero 2050. Yeah, right, right I like the point. yeah, yeah. I like the way that they they sort of what I, what was the language they used? They had safe bets and wild cards, yes. and I kind of like that that language because you know, okay, safe bets we agree, like an intertie, safe bet. We know mm -hmm. that that's going to you know help um, bring you know clean power from one part of the country to another part. Super duper. The right. wild cards, like okay, so we, we how many wild cards do you bet on? Yeah. How many do you think through? Um, you know, and given the size of the decarbonization challenge, it kind of gets you into a bit of a world where we should probably bet on all the stuff we know about and think about what those opportunities could look like. And again, going back to the vastness of Canada, right. good chance we're going to need those across all of our country. Yeah, I, and I've been talking with some you know, some of the senior leadership in the industry, some CEOs. Uh, and a couple have been on the podcast uh, uh, already to talk about their vision for net zero. Um, you know, in the, you know, in the case of uh, Ontario Power Generation, that was uh, one of the one of the guests. They've got a, a net zero twenty forty plan. Uh, but yeah, theirs as well is is a, is a mix of the things that we found in the safe bets. 
Um, and, and increasingly, you know, the safe bets are, are kind of now to the 2030 timeframe. Right. But getting beyond 2030 is, is where we're going into some of those uh, some of those wild cards. Well, and I think that's reasonable, right? Like if you ask me what I'm going to be doing in five years, I can probably tell you. If I ask you where I'm going to be in 10 or 15 years, maybe not so clear. Yeah. And so I feel like that's a little bit of, of the wild card, um, sort of the, the magic around it. But I think the other thing that, you know, and my colleague Drew Laburn will always tell me that, like, if you want to have those wild cards ready in 10 to 15 years, you got to start putting those bets down now. And I think that's one of the hardest challenges that we have, right? Figuring out where to place those incremental dollars and uh, and where to sort of double down on those investments. And, and that's that's a challenging bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you know, again, one of the things that have come up in previous conversations is precisely that the time it takes to actually bring projects forward, yeah. you know, uh, from conception, going through all, all of the various re regulatory processes and then engineering, design, construction, um, the, uh, you know, uh, we're being told by our members that uh, 2030, uh, a 2030 target uh, in 2021 today means, man, if you haven't started on the project now, it, yeah. it is it is not going to be something that's going to be out in, in 2030, which is why I was a little bit surprised uh, by, and, and I don't know if, you know, you can shed some light on it, um, you know, talking about different various targets. We know what the 2050 target is. It's pretty clear. It's, it's in legislation. Um, and, you know, we've, we've got people that are doing research that show us some of the pathways to what that net zero 2050 can look like. But the 2030 aspirations are, are, have been a bit of a, a moving target. We've seen the government go uh, really from like a 30 percent commitment to a 36 percent commitment to a to a 40 to 45 percent commitment. And that's that's in a pretty tight time frame. But, you know, that's nine years from now. Um, you know, that, that's, you know, got me kind of scratching my head. Uh, is that an indication that, that we're going to see some policy uh, changes to, to enable that more quickly? Or, or is that uh, a reflection that, the, that uh, you know, we're on track uh, to something that, that we thought was only going to be a 30% reduction, but maybe even more than that? No, it's a great question. Um, I think about the sort of the 2030 targets in terms of like, we have to keep moving, just as you were saying that, um, you know, if we want to meet our 2050 objectives, the world is moving quickly. Yeah. Like we got to be taking steps and action every single day and sort of hold our feet to the fire in order to get there. Um, so getting to sort of 40 to 45% by 2030 is it's tight for sure, but there are sort of real actions that we can do in terms of industrial decarbonization, mm -hmm. changing our energy systems, but we need to not just have sort of it be somebody else's responsibility. It's really yeah. demonstrating that everybody has to be sort of pitching in um, at every level of government, every level of society to get there. But to your question on like, are we going to be seeing sort of new policies, new programming and all of those sorts of things? Like, I think the strength and climate plan um, it, it set out a, a pretty robust kit of tools on the programming side and then also on the regulatory side that are going to help sort of pull some of those, um, you know, those megatons out of the system while at the same time providing those supports to transform the market. Um, but I think my biggest lesson that I've seen over the past six to 12 months is that 
we're constantly learning. And so we're identifying where you might need more, where you might need to calibrate, where we might need to adjust. And so that would be, I think, the, the biggest predictor is that we're going to continue to adjust you know, pivot in implementation to make sure that we're ready to achieve these objectives. Cause we just, we have to get there. Mm. Hey, before we, before we yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, keep going down, uh, down the, <laughs> down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yes. Down that rabbit hole. One of the questions that I, that I ask folks uh, who come on the podcast yeah. is about their journey. Um, mm. And so uh, I think uh, the, uh, the listener would be interested to hear about your journey. Your uh, assistant deputy minister, uh, yes. when you were a kid playing in the playground, <laughs> did you say to yourself, man, I, I want to be the assistant deputy minister one day? How did, how did you, uh, what, was your, what was your journey to, to, to where you are today in the, uh, in the government of Canada? Oh my. So um, no, I never said I wanted to be an assistant deputy minister because I had no idea what that was. Um, I grew up in, uh, in Port Credit, Ontario, um, which is uh, about two hours south of where I am right now. And um, I grew up in a family of a lot of folks who were very active in politics, but not all for one party. So um, each side of the spectrum was effectively represented and so a very sort of political household um and you know so that was always part of sort of part of my blood part of what i um i grew up with and you know that was sort of the dinner conversation um but you know i did my my undergraduate degree in political science and then did my master's in international affairs in ottawa and you know that sort of starts getting you into a bit of the government town and applied for some of the programs and um, they offered to teach me how to speak French when I applied to, to the program there. And I thought, what a wonderful idea. I've been paying for education all this time. It would be lovely for someone to, uh, to teach, pay, pay for me. Um, but I would say that once I got into the government, my first job was at Public Works and Government Services in a group called the Corporate Implementation Group that was responsible for um, the Crown Corporations, and it was right okay. smack in the middle of the Galliano affair. So oh, it was, boy. Oh. I know, it was quite exciting and quite scandalous. So it was perfect for me because I was very interested. Um, but, you know, the deal I made with myself is like, I don't know if I'll do this forever, but I'll do it this year as long as it stays interesting and maybe I'll leave next year. Mm -hmm. And that's been the deal I cut with myself all the way through you know, maybe they'll leave next year, but right now it's interesting and I'll, I'll just keep going. And it's been 20 years and it's been, you know, the best career I've, I could possibly have hoped for. Like I've been all over the world and mm -hmm. met the most interesting people, yourself included, doing the coolest stuff. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's been a bit of the trajectory of spending time, you know, in the center and with the first minority government since Joe Clark um, was there doing legislation, house planning and an environment and now over here yeah. it's fun love it and and is this the getting to do the low carbon stuff is is this now the the uh, the ultimate in in, in interesting uh, how does it how does it compare yeah. to, to some oh, of the stuff it is so great um my first assistant deputy minister job was as um the head of communications and what i loved about that was it was an opportunity to sort of mix policy and creativity in a way like when you could just sort of talk to people about what amazing stuff the government does. And, you know, sometimes being a public servant is, is an act of holding your tongue. Yeah. Um, but it was a great opportunity to just sort of promote some really amazing things that people were doing. This job is an opportunity to engage and advance policy objectives in 
such a dynamic way and, and really shape and transform. And so for me, this has been the greatest job that I've had the opportunity to hold. Um, and uh, so, so I just love it. It's, uh, it's fantastic. I'd be hard pressed to find something that I, I enjoy as much. Fantastic. Yeah. So, so, so let's, let's, uh, let's drill down back to it. Let's, let's get, let's, let's go back into one of those, one of those, uh, one of those tangents. How does, you know, the, 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 the big push um, mm. for, for you in, in the low carbon sector and for the government with Bill C-12 is, is how are we going to decarbonize uh, Canada's economy? And this podcast is about the future of electricity. So how do you see electricity fitting into that overall decarbonization strategy for Canada? Um, so it's so interesting. Um, so when we talk about it's it, depending on who you talk to, you know, everyone, you either get people saying, so what, it's all electricity now, nothing but electricity, mm. or you get people saying, so it's all clean fuels now, nothing but clean fuels. Right. Um, and so, you know, from, from our perspective and, and as we look at things, our view is that we're going to need both. You know, you can't have a system that's only made up of one energy source and that our future is going to be powered by both electricity and clean fuels. Um, I think the opportunity for electrification in um, in Canada is is tremendous because we're building on a strength that we have. I think one of the, the questions that I, I have and one of the areas that I look forward to continuing to collaborate on is um, in electricity, but also in other parts of the economy is like, do, what is the rule systems? Like, what are the changes that we need to make? Like, what do we kind of need to onboard so that we are prepared mm -hmm. to drive the low carbon future? So I, I think about it from a provincial perspective, like what rule systems do we need? Right. How does that look across the country? And then how do we sort of shape a system that we as Canada want to influence globally so that we're set up for success. Right. And so like, what does that mean for our, you know, for renewables, for all of those pieces? So like, I just see that we've operated with a system that's looked a certain way for a certain mm -hmm. number of decades. And so yeah. how are we preparing ourselves to sort of shift and to be a leader in that future? Mm -hmm. um, I know you've been doing a lot of work on that in terms of the, you know, sort of the codes, the standards, the preparation, um, rule system pieces that we need to get in place. But I think there's a lot to do. And, and given how quickly, as you say, this transformation is coming, like we're going to have to accelerate our work. And we're not, and we're not doing it alone. We're not, we're not no. doing it in, in isolation. In fact, exactly. One of the first times uh, you and I had got, had an opportunity to chat, we were at uh, COP25 in, in Madrid and the I conversation know. there was, was all about, um, you know, uh, how and, and what could an international uh, uh, trading regime look like? Yep. Um, is that uh, an important feature as, as well of, of the, of the, uh, of the, the net zero plan for the future, how we're going to do this internationally and, and collaboratively with other countries? Yeah. So I must say on the, like, so on sort of the COP stuff, like the negotiations, the trade and all those sorts of pieces, there are, well, in many cases, there are people who are much smarter than I on, uh, uh, they're much smarter than me on, on all of those on the negotiation pieces in the in the context of COP, in terms of sort of broader international collaboration on um, our low carbon system, on electricity, on renewables, on all of those pieces, mm -hmm. like it's fundamental. Like the work that we've been doing in the context of the clean energy ministerial, right. um, you know, in the context of hydrogen, like the different committees that we have in place, like mm -hmm. those are going to be foundational for us to 
build the future that we want. I think the other aspect and dimension of it as well is also the like the people part of all of this and building okay. the, the labor force and the skill that we skill set that we need to sort of power the low carbon future as well. Right. Um, I think there's barriers that we don't really quite know are there yet. Um, and I think that's going to be another part of the pivot that we kind of need to do. You, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, it's electricity or it's clean fuels. When you're talking about <laughs> clean fuels, what's the what's the focus? Is it is it all about hydrogen? Because my members are interested in that. You know, everybody uh, loves hydrogen. Everybody loves hydrogen, but I mean, you know, the, the the possibility of using clean electricity to produce clean hydrogen. Yeah. Uh, is it is it hydrogen? Are there are there other are there other uh, clean fuels that are of interest and in that you think are going to be part of the the 2050 picture? Yeah, no, so um, it's a great question. So it was yesterday, actually. Was it yesterday? We're on Tuesday. Um, yesterday, the minister announced the Clean Fuels Fund, um, yep. which is a $1.5 billion program, um, which is about sort of fueling a cleaner future on the fuel side. Mm-hmm. From that, we're looking at funding uh, about 10 hydrogen production facilities. Um, so okay. that could be from electrolysis and, uh, you know, but it could be from other sources as well. Uh, it could also be what uh, people have called, well, it would be um, natural gas plus CCUS. We, we try and stay away from the colors. We're trying to focus really on the, the yep. carbon intensity, but blue hydrogen. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's another, I was on a panel yesterday talking about the sort of the the co-benefits of um, nuclear and hydrogen. So the opportunities to be genefa- uh, generating hydrogen from, um, from nuclear facilities as well. And, and that's an area that a number of folks are exploring too. And there's some uh, real potential that's underway in the UK, um, mm. where they're able to use the the steam to sort of generate nuclear on an accelerated basis. And uh, so that's another opportunity there as well. So, so, you know, there's a lot sort of happening in that space. Um, and, uh, and sort of see there, biofuels are another part of that uh, fund too. So we're also looking at, you know, opportunities like renewable natural gas, uh, which has a huge benefit because it's a drop-in fuel. So it's a lot easier to sort of convert facilities from one to another. Okay. Uh, so, you know, lots of opportunities. Um, the sort of the regulatory side of this is the is the clean fuel standard, which right. create a bit of the pull for that as mm-hmm. well. So, you know, w- we want to make sure that as the clean fuel standards encourages Canadians to use cleaner fuels, the opportunity to purchase those are based on the Canadian market as opposed mm-hmm. to people having to import them from other jurisdictions. So that's really what we're trying to achieve with this. Well, it leads me to, to a question really about competitiveness and, and Canada's mm. competitiveness, clean fuel standard, um, you know, putting a price on carbon and so on. Uh, we're, we already have some issues with respect to, to Canada's competitiveness internationally. Um, how do how do uh, competitiveness concerns fit into these conversations about uh, at the same time trying to decarbonize the, the Canadian economy? Yeah, no, it's it's an excellent question. I mean, we've spoken about this the sort of triangle, right, of affordable, reliable, yeah. and clean power. And if you get any part of that triangle too That's out right. of whack, you're yeah. hooped. Yeah. And so, and two out of three is easy. If you pick <laughs> two, but doing all three is is where where the yeah the, the magic comes in. Exactly. It's you got it. You got to keep all three balls in the air at all times. Um, and so, you know, when I think about this, I think what when I observe sort of what's changed over the past year, and would welcome your views on this as well. 
you know, at one point there was sort of this question about the policy, right? Like, should we go to net zero? Like, is this where the markets are going? Like, what are we trying to get to? I would say with some of the big investment decisions that we've seen over the past year with some of the, you know, you, you've seen the banks putting um, ESG outcomes as part of the performance yes. metrics yeah. of their, you know, their board members, yeah. like all of a sudden it's not all of a sudden, but owing to the continued and sustained engagement of many people and their efforts, yeah. I think what we've seen is a shift of this being a debate of environment and economy sort of being competing things yeah, to yeah. markets and global markets, not Canadian markets, pricing in, mm-hmm. um, you know, products, services that are produced in an, um, a climate-friendly way. Yeah. And so to your question about competitiveness, we're absolutely, there will be, you know, transformation adjustments, I think, that we would go through. But I, I think that the question is, is, in going through that transformation, are we positioning Canada to be that supplier of choice so mm-hmm. that we are best positioned to lead a net zero economy? Um, so that just in the way that we have consistently benefited from um, our energy abundance up until today, right. in the future, we will be positioned to be that leader um, in a cleaner future. So I think that's kind of how I think through that one. Okay. So I think like, I I don't want to suggest for a moment that there's not costs, considerations and, you know, tricky bits that we really do need to manage our way through. But I think we need to deal with each of those issues head on so that we like with a strong recognition that the prize is absolutely worth getting to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the sort of the other side of the coin, one side of the coin yeah. is concerns about our, our relative competitiveness, um, particularly if, if we're, we're moving more quickly uh, yeah. than, than, um, than other economies. The other side of the coin, uh, and this was a conversation I had with Kate Chisholm from Capital Power in the, in the um, uh, earlier podcast, um, they're uh, doing work um, with carbon capture and utilization. They're looking at direct air capture. Um, uh, they're, they're seeing, uh, in, at least in their view, uh, potential very significant business opportunities right. in, in their future. And, and they're also determined that Canada is going to be a leader in some of, this, some of, yeah. these, uh, some of these technologies. Do you, do you see that as well? Is, is this, uh, it, it, do we have the opportunities here to, to, to really be leaders and, and, and peddle our wares potentially internationally with the, the technologies and, and the processes that are being developed here? I think so. I mean, I think I think that's right. Like, I think there's a number of areas where Canada has, you know, from just as you're saying, from experiences mm-hmm. with our energy sector, where we know that, you know, the oil and gas folks have been huge investors in clean technology because they've had to be, um, but they've really got like, these are things that they can share with the world and they can, you know, be leaders in that technology. CCUS, you know, we've had the experience in Saskatchewan with the Weyburn Dam for years. Um, and again, that's going to be foundational and support us in moving forward. Um, our Indigenous communities are also leaders in clean energy. Um, you know, the, the work that they're doing um, to, to, develop, um, to develop clean energy projects that are not connected to the grid have been, you know, just exceptional. And frankly, are, are going to be opportunities that could be scaled up and shared 
um, and, and sold and commodified as we sort of are looking at how, as other countries um, around the world are looking at how to support clean energy transformations in their um, off-grid communities. So that really is a international market um, that is accessible owing to the experience and capacity that those Indigenous communities have built. So I think that there's a lot, a huge potential um, for what Canada has. And mm-hmm. it's not just sort of a one, it, sort of going back to that initial theme, it's not one size fits all. Like right. we, there's yeah. a lot to offer. Yeah, yeah. I, I did want to ask you a question that, that one of my colleagues suggested uh, I put to you. And, oh, and so, so, so this is, this is not, <laughs> it's me. not me, it's them. <laughs> it's not me, it's them. There you go. So, so, so here it is. Um, uh, after the coal phase out um, in, in electricity generation in 2030, would you try to get that last sort of 10% of emissions in the electricity sector that are still emitting? Or would you focus on getting electricity that's already clean to replace fossil fuels in other sectors? What would be the priority to sort of go after that little bit that's left in electricity or to, to focus on, on, on kind of switching from electricity, switching electricity in for, for fossil fuels? Hmm. So I'm not sure I could say which one I would declaratively do, but I think, you know, as with all of these things, and like we're looking at off diesel as well in a number of areas where we're trying to figure out how do we sort of take certain emitting um, energy sources out of the grid on our pathway to uh, net zero by 2050. Based on the sort of technology that we have available today, we know that that cost curve just shoots straight up as you start mm-hmm. getting to that last 10%. And it's yep. challenging. And, you know, I think in the sort of the federal space as as all governments do and sort of with our responsibilities being stewards of resources we're always trying to look at what's the best value for money um and and i think that's probably what it would come down to like questions along are there going to be new technologies that can help us sort this out at a lower cost like sort of how do how do all the pieces fit together um can we do it for cheaper if we wait x amount of years where can we have the maximum benefit for canadians you know um and then how do we sort of prioritize which we go for but uh, so i know that's not satisfactory for your colleague in terms of which which one i would choose but i think at the end of the day it's you know if if at the end, we're trying to look at how to squeeze the last megaton out of the system, how to have a least emissions intensive grid. Um, I would just basically look at what gets us there faster. So the focus, the focus really is on decarbonizing. That's the that's the objective. Yeah, on emissions intensity. Yeah. So the the expectation is that the electricity, the need for non-emitting electricity between now and 2050 is, is going to double or or triple. Right, and that's up. yeah, yeah, and so what's the what's the, um, um, the the vast majority of those investments are going to be made by by industry, by utility companies, by independent power producers, by individual Canadians who are you know going to be looking at distributed energy solutions because that's that's a lot of um, uh, megawatt hours that we're going to need. What's the role of the federal government in in all of this? Um, if if it's the role of industry to to to, to build uh, that infrastructure, what's the role that the federal government plays to uh, to facilitate and move us towards that future? Towards a future of more elect- like uh, increasing the amount of electricity that's available in the how, system. Yeah, how are we going to actually be able to yeah. produce two to three times more uh, um, non-emitting electricity? Mm-hmm. And, and and what role does the federal government play to to facilitate that? 
No, it's, it's a great question. So I see a couple of things. Um, first of all, one of the areas I see is sort of the the modeling and, you know, sort of looking at that supply demand kind of thing. Um, it's interesting as we as we go through different places, sometimes the estimate of how quickly and what demand is going to increase is variable. It might not be as big as we think. It might be lower than we think. It might be bigger than we think. But I think there is a value in sort of keeping our eye on um, what that looks like and what it looks like over time and just having that sort of real-time capacity. My view is, is that's helpful information for us to have in a transparent manner. Um, the second thing I would say is sort of looking at the marketplace and saying, where do investments need to be de-risked? So, okay. you know, right. where's the where's the market going to play in an effective way? Um, and then if it's not going to play, like where where would we need to get in and then get out in order to facilitate um, a transition or more clean power coming online to sort of support these objectives. So I think that's sort of a second piece. And you look at programs like the um, SREPS program, and I'm awful at acronyms, I apologize, but it's like <laughs> the smart renewables and electrification pathways, I think. And my right, yeah, the minister be- announced it like two weeks ago, yeah. Roger that. Um, that's the $964 million renewables program. But um, so I know what it does, I know how it does, but uh, acronyms not my friend. Um, But, you know, it's those kinds of things that would look like, how would we sort of in a focused manner target um, bringing more renewables onto the system? But ultimately, my view is that like the government's job should be to try and get in and get out and then not be there anymore, because we want to be setting up an economy that um, that favors those sorts of things. And then I would say the final piece is, um, like, where are the barriers? Like, what barriers exist? Mm -hmm. So are there things that the federal, like, rules, regulations, legislation, policies, like do they come into conflict with each other or with provincial or municipal sort of rule systems that are going to inhibit our ability to transition? And that's where organizations like the Canadian Electricity Association and others are very helpful in sort of hearing from the broader membership and saying to us like, you know, something's not right here and we need to figure it out. And so trying to sort of identify what those are so that we can have a reasoned discussion about how we clear those barriers or identify why we can't. Um, and so particularly moving through a position of transition, I think it's government's role to, to identify and clear those barriers and, mm-hmm. and also learn from other jurisdictions. Um, like we have great relationships with the European Union, um, UK, like and others, so we can learn from their experiences as well. So that's three, if that's helpful. <laughs> You know, one of, one of the uh, other things that that uh, folks have talked about uh, over the years, really, uh, uh, within the sector and uh, and uh, and with stakeholders, is you know the the challenge of of uh, seeking to meet um, society overall societal objectives, um, but using um, you know the the electricity system or, or you know using some other uh, some other system to achieve it. So. I guess the question would be, um, does the rate payer, the electricity rate payer, pay for all of the cost for us to decarbonize? Or are there some uh, you know, um, some things that, that uh, should rightly uh, be recognized as public goods uh, and therefore uh, societal costs? And while you know the ratepayer and the taxpayer are the same person, um, you know, are, are some of these costs uh, uh, costs that should be borne as a public good as opposed to uh, a cost that should be borne as part of your electricity bill? Does that make you any know, sense as a question? No, listen, I totally get it, and and the reason I'm smiling is because 
you know, it's the same conversation that we would have with private sector companies um, in a sense, which is, you know, we have these plans in order to, um, you know, refurbish X or to do Y, yeah. but there is a benefit that you are asking us, you know, government, province, whatever to do. And so is that a cost that should be borne by us company or should be borne by, you know, um, is it a public good cost? And so I think what that really comes down to in my mind is who bears the cost of, um, of climate action or right. you know, who bears the cost of a transition to a cleaner future. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Um, you know, and I think there are tools like, um, with carbon pricing, there's, you know, there's a lot of tools and, and revenues that are generated out of that, like that can be directed back directly to the taxpayer. So there's a lot of pieces that are sort of there that, uh, that you know help offset some of the costs associated with that, but um, I, yeah, I, yeah, because pricing—it's a, it's a then, tricky bit. Yeah, it is because then then pricing signals come into this yep. as well. Um, uh, if if uh, in the case of electricity, if you're talking about more costs being borne by electricity. Um, does that, uh, you know, tend to um, uh, depress the, the interest in using electricity yeah. more? Um, yeah. Yeah. And well, and I guess the the other question I have too is like, is are the rule systems that are around, you know, the utilities at this point? Like, do they like are they sufficient to support taking risk, like on innovation and? that sort of thing like our regulators don't like that stuff regulators really, right well but but it's the mandate it's the the the, the, the mandate they have uh is is tends to be very risk averse yeah. uh, and so that because yeah that becomes challenging because there are certainly risks involved to be able to to achieve some of these some of these uh objectives that that we have as a society yeah. And so, and I think that's part of the question there, which is how do we name those things? Like the, where mm. the risk aversion or risk, like, and I guess this is where I sort of come back to the rural system, which is we've had a system that's been in place for a very good reason for X amount of time. But if yeah. we have to go through a period of transition, are there things that we actually need to do to examine and confirm that, that we've either got the right frame mm. or that we need to maybe make some adjustments so that we can get from where we are to where we want to be because in my view saying that this is how it's always been mm -hmm. is not going to be the sufficient conditions for success as we want to move forward yeah i don't think we're going to solve this one today not today but maybe tomorrow maybe tomorrow <laughs> but, but but molly one of the things that that we could solve is hmm. uh is adding another book to what I, i'm starting to call the flux capacitor book club uh, so I've been I've been asking people to come oh, no. on the podcast. Yes. Yeah, I'm asking folks um, uh, either about the book that they're reading or a book that they've recently read that they would recommend to uh, the listener of the podcast. So for you, Molly, what book would that be? Oh no, it's not fair because I'm a horrible reader because there is so much work that we're doing all the time that I never actually sit down and read a good book. Um, but what I would say is I've been reading with my daughter a book by my cousin, who is an author, um, and her name is Kit Pearson, uh -huh. and um, she won the Governor General's Award for, um, for writing, and the book is called A Handful of Time. And uh, anyway, it's, it's a fabulous book. Uh, her first book was called The Daring Game, and it was about uh, 
private school girls uh, back in the day. But anyway, lovely, wonderful books. If you have children between the ages of eight and uh, a 12, wonderful Canadian literature. All right. Eight to 12 year old Kit Pearson, A Handful of Time. A handful of time. It's a nice little going back in time at a summer cottage. So it's a it's a fantastic summer read. Spectacular. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much. Molly, thank you for taking the time. It's always, oh always a pleasure to chat with you and and to go down these sometimes strange rabbit holes about uh, energy and electricity policy. Well, I have to tell you, this was the perfect wind down to a very busy day. And uh, for my part, fantastic to chat as well. Thank you, Francis, very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future podcasts in this series, which will include industry, government, and stakeholder guests, further discussing the implications of and the pathways to the net zero future. And as always, let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.